0: Well, we are continuing our series called The Future You, and we're looking at basically two questions. Who are you going to be over the next five years if you continue the course you're on, and who do you want to be? Because if you don't like where you're headed, now's the time to get off that train. Now's the time to make the necessary adjustments. And when it talks about making change, when, it, when we talk about making a change in our lives, one one question comes up almost without, without reservation, and that is, why is change so difficult? Why is it so difficult to change? Why is change so difficult? When we talk about change, one reality is you can't ignore it. It is hard. It is hard. If it were easy, everyone would change and we wouldn't have to have a sermon like this one. But it's hard, so how do we overcome it? Well, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the life of a prophet by the name of Elisha. Now, you've probably all heard of Elijah. Elisha was the guy who followed him. There's I don't know why God chose those two names to be so similar, but Elijah came first, and then Elisha was his replacement. And we're going to look at three events in the life of Elisha that give us some Specific actions that I think if we employ those, if we deploy those, we use those, we can actually usher in change in our lives. So, the first event in Elisha's life is found in 1 Kings, the 19th chapter. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, we're going to start with verse 19. It's here we start to learn about Elisha, who would eventually be the prophet Elijah's replacement. Elijah was the mightiest of all the miracle-working prophets. If they had a Mount Rushmore for prophets, Elijah would be center of that, of that uh, sculpture. But God had told Elijah in advance that he was going to be replaced and his replacement was going to be Elisha. And we read in verse 19 of 1 Kings 19, it says, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. If you wondered who his dad was, it's Shaphat, okay? Shaphat's his dad, and he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up behind him. Elijah went up to him, excuse me, and threw his cloak around him. Now, when Elijah found him, it's, there's something kind of subtle in the text, but it tells us a lot about Elisha. Elijah finds him, and he's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he's driving the 12th pair. And what that tells us, and you may not have noticed this, and it's okay, it tells us that Elisha comes from a very wealthy family. You see, an oxen that day would have been the equivalent of an expensive John Deere tractor today. And the Shaphat farm had 12 pairs. That means they had 24 of these oxen. Pretty expensive, fancy pieces of farm equipment. And you have to think, you have to wonder, how much land do you have to own where it's necessary to have 24 oxen to work the land? Probably a pretty significant size farm. That means the Shaphat Farms was a significant enterprise. And Elisha's part of it. We don't know if he's going to be the inherit. He's going to inherit this farm, all of it or part of it. We have to assume that at some point this is going to be his, or he's going to share some of it. Well, we read in verse nineteen, Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him, and that's kind of a, you know, weird thing, right? You, we don't walk down the street and somebody comes up behind you and throws a coat over your shoulders. You look chilly, my friend. we would go, what kind of nut job are you, right? I mean, it's generous and it's kind. See, we don't know if these guys have ever met before. We don't know that. Now, we know Elisha knows who Elijah is because everybody knows who Elijah is. And we also know that Elijah knows about Elisha because God has told him, this is your replacement. Elijah was bigger than life. As I mentioned, he's the mightiest of the miracle-working prophets. In fact, on one occasion, Elijah said, it is not going to rain until I say that it can rain. And do you know that for three years, it did not rain? That's pretty powerful. So Elisha is plowing just like any other day when all of a sudden, Elijah appears out of nowhere. And as he approaches, Elijah takes off his jacket, and he runs up behind him, and he throws his jacket over Elisha's shoulders, and he starts to walk away. Now, it's important to note that this is not just weirdness run amok. This is a symbolic gesture in that era. Essentially, what Elijah's doing is he's giving Elisha the opportunity to be part of an unpaid internship. Internship. He gets the opportunity, the chance to work under Elijah's mentoring, his his authority, his tutelage. And Elisha knew full well what was being offered to him when Elijah threw the jacket over his shoulders. In verse 20 it says, Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. You realize that what he is walking away from in this moment. I want you to think about it. He's walking away from Shaphat Enterprises, everything that his dad and the family had built up to this point. And potentially, he's kissing the life that he knew goodbye, the life that he loved, and maybe even this future opportunity to run this whole operation. He's kissing it all goodbye to follow Elijah. Now, Elijah, on his own merits, his life is very impressive. But don't be be confused. His life is also very treacherous, as almost all lives are that can be greatly used by God. There's a challenge. There's difficulty, sometimes even danger. On one other occasion, Elijah calls down fire from heaven while he is facing off with 450 pagan prophets on Mount Carmel. Do you remember that? It's probably his most well-known moment. But between the time when he said, it's not gonna rain until I say, and calling down fire from heaven, there are a a number of years in here of real difficulty and hardship. Don't forget, don't forget. At one point, Elijah was living beside a brook, and ravens actually fed him. Ravens, directed by God, brought him food. And he drank water from the brook, and the birds fed him, and then one day the brook dried up. Now, that's hardship. Bear Grylls would be thrilled with him. He'd be so proud of him, right? But the reality is that's hardship, and that was part of Elijah's life. And Elisha, he may not know all the details of it, but he knows that it's not just all about, hey, it's not going to rain until I say, or calling fire down from heaven. There's a whole lot more of reality in between there. Now, those things happen. And they're celebrated. But it wasn't the only part of Elisha's life. Elisha had a good idea of what he's signing on for. This is a life where God's going to use him dramatically. But hardship and difficulty and opposition will be part of it. And you need to recognize that when you step out for the kingdom of God, not everybody's going to applaud that. There are going to be some people that are going to throw some forearm shivers, maybe verbally, maybe even physically, because... They don't agree with you, and they don't want you to succeed. That's what he accepted there on that spot. Elijah responds, and he says this to him. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? In other words, what he's saying here is go kiss your mom goodbye, because you always got to kiss your mom goodbye, right? But just make sure that you think twice about what you're about to step into, what you are doing here before you leave. Make sure you count the cost. And that's true for us today. As some of you are looking down the road five years from now and saying, hey, I want to be this person, not the person I am right now. I want to be farther down the road and a much different person, and thus I'm making the changes today. But you better count the cost. You know, when Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me in the New Testament, that's him saying count the cost. Know what you're getting into. Make sure you understand that you're embracing a life of sacrifice. You're embracing a life where you're not in control totally anymore because now you have surrendered that to the Lord and He's going to direct your steps. A lot of people don't do that though, they don't count the cost. They see God as kind of a genie and a lamp, they don't see it as a relationship with the creator of the universe. They see it as though they rub the side of this thing and out comes three wishes. And he's got, to, he's got to obey what they say. That's not it at all. And what happens, unfortunately, is those people will say, use me, Lord, use me. And three months later, they walk away from God because they feel used. Because that's what God's been doing, answering their prayer. To so put them to work for the kingdom. Make sure you understand what's happening. Understand what you're getting into. Verse 21 says, So Elisha left him and went back. Most likely he went back and kissed mom and said goodbye to everybody. And then it says, He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Don't forget those last three words in this verse. He became his servant. In answer to Elijah's question... Do you understand what you're signing on to? Elisha makes this significant statement He kissed his mom and then he turned around and he killed his oxen and he made this huge bonfire and he barbecued the uh, oxen and then he he shared the barbecue with all of those people around and they ate together, him and his friends. And that represented his life. That That was a systemic moment in his life because he said, This right here, this is what I used to be all about and I have just burned it and we ate it. He destroyed one of the family tractors, if you will pretty strong statement. That's the first event that we see. Elijah's invitation to come follow Elijah. Event number two. So he follows Elijah and what does he do? Well the text tells us, remember I said pay attention to those last three words, it says he became his servant. He became Elijah's servant. And get this, 18 years or so pass during this period of time, and we know very little about what takes place during this block of time. There's, in fact, only one thing that we know, and it's found in 2 Kings, the third chapter, verse 11. Listen what it says: It says, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, that's his dad, remember? Shaphat? Elijah, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. That's what he did for 18 years or so. All he did was, as a servant of Elijah, we know of only one thing he did. He poured water on the hands of the prophet. That's how he served him. Poured water in his hands so that his hands were clean. That's what he did. 18 years. And I wonder if there weren't moments during that period of time where he just thought back. You know, I'm washing the prophet's hands. I'm good at that. I got, you know, 12 years in, you know, been doing it kind of good. I wonder if you ever thought about what was going on at Shafat Enterprises. I'd probably be a senior partner now. I might be the CEO. I might be in charge. There's no evidence that he had any remorse or any regrets. But you have to wonder. Because sometimes we do, right? We follow God's call and we get into the middle of it and it's hard. All we're doing is washing somebody's hands. 18 years of pouring water on the prophet's hands. That's hard. It's boring. Servants. That's what it is, service. We don't hear a sermon from him. We don't hear him performing a miracle. He was in a role in the background just supporting the ministry that made what Elijah do possible. He's Elijah's servant. That's the event number two. Event number three. Finally, more information starts to flow about what's going on in the life of Elisha. Elijah is nearing the end of his life. And God told Elijah in advance, you're going to go to heaven. And they let Elisha in on this. And they begin walking to a solitary place where where the two are going to d- depart from one another. And Elijah is going to go to heaven at that place. But before they get there, they have to cross the Jordan. And when they get to this point, Elijah takes the jacket off, the one he had put over Elisha's shoulders, and he takes it and he slaps the edge of the water with it, the edge of the river. And all of a sudden the river parts, and it says that they walked across. 2 Kings 2.9, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I, tell me what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Listen to Elisha's answer. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. I hope as you think of the great things that God has done in your life and in the lives of those around you, I hope that your request, when you look at the future, you in five years, or you in a year, or two years, or wherever, 10 years down the road, that your request, your prayer to God, is do twice as much in my life and through my life in the coming days. I hope that you're praying that over your kids and over your grandkids, even if you don't have grandkids yet. That you're praying for them. And I hope when you pray about this church, that you pray, Lord, will you give Northeast a double portion of what you've done in the past, will you do even twice as much in the future through this effort? You see, we need to be praying big prayers. I wanted to see God do even more than he's done in the past. And if you think what he's done in the past was great, if we pray these prayers, you haven't seen anything yet. The problem with praying small prayers is you might get just what you've asked for instead of what God wanted to give you all along. So Elijah considers what Elisha asks for. He's the mightiest of the miracle-working prophets, remember? We know his, he's performed 14 different miracles that we know of, 14. So if you just take that as a baseline, he says, you have asked a difficult thing. That's what Elijah said to Elisha. 14 times two, double portion, that'd be 28 miracles. That's a lot of miracles. Is God able to do that? No problem. Listen to what Elijah says. He said, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. <laughs> there is nothing that seems to be easy with Elijah, right? Everything always has some kind of caveat with it. But he says, hey, if you see me, even in his death, he said, if you see me when I leave, then it'll come to you. Now, God had something stranger in store for Elijah's ascension to heaven. He's not going to die like you and I are going to die. Now, there is one... There was one aspect of that that may be not true. Jesus may return while some of us are alive, and then technically you're not going to die either. But none of us are going to go like this. None of us. It says this, As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Yeah, that's not going to happen for you you're probably gonna go, oh, coronary, boom, die. Paramedics, you know, that's gonna be you, right? But not Elijah, (laughs) Elijah's like, you know, I'm leaving on a fiery chariot. And think about this, you can't miss that. I mean, think about, he said, if you don't see me when I leave, well, it's hard to miss a fiery chariot with fiery horses, right? I said in the first service, that they should call this Air Horse One. I know, and I said that to one of my daughters, and she goes, that's a dad joke, don't tell it. I got it from a millennial, so I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna anchor with it, right? Here's what he says. He sees all of this happen, Elijah does. And then, the, then verse 12. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, and Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and he tore it in two. He actually ripped his clothes in half. This was a sign of his grief. Why would you do that? This was out of respect. This was a common thing. This was a common thing in that day. They would rend their clothes. This was a, the sign of his adoration and his honor. And it showed the love that he had for Elijah and that he was going to miss him. But then we read in verse 13, it says, Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood at the bank of the Jordan. So he's watching this whirlwind go, and these horses shoot off in Air Horse 1, and they're going off into heaven, and all of a sudden his jacket falls to the ground. And Elisha sees it and he goes over and he picks it up. And look what he does. It says, he took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and he struck the water with it. He just saw Elijah do that just moments before. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asks. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left and he crossed over. The Lord was right there with him. This story has so much to say to us as we look to get where we want to be five years from now, 10 years from now. I titled this message, When a Crisis is Good, because a crisis is an event that, if you think about it, it proves that we are capable of change. A lot of times we say, oh, I could never do that, or I could never change, or that would never happen in my life. But if you had to, if you were in the most... Specific of circumstances where everything was closing in on you on both sides, you could do what you needed to do that you said you could never do. My dad was driving home from work. He worked second shift, so he would usually get home around 10.30 to 11. And on his way home that one night, he came across an intersection where it was a terrible accident. He said people were hurt, and one car actually was laying on top of one of the people. And my dad said nobody was doing anything. They just got there. I mean, the wreck had just happened minutes before. Paramedics weren't there. The police weren't there yet. And so my dad said, hey, we need to get this this lady out from underneath this car. And this guy says, well, I don't think we should move her. She may have some problems. My dad said, there's gas leaking everywhere. He said, if she burns up, (laughs) that's not good. So my dad goes over and he says, I'll pick this up. You pull her out. And he lifts the end of the car up. Now, he told us that part of the story, right? He lifts the end of the car. Now, my dad was physically, he was a really strong guy in his prime, but I have to believe that the adrenaline was really pumping that day because when he lifted that up, people ran over and they pulled this lady out, and she later called my dad to tell him thanks. She actually tracked him down to find out who was the guy that pulled her out from underneath the car. When a crisis happens, you find out what you're made of. You find out what you're capable of. In fact, you find out some of the extreme lengths that you could go to accomplish certain things. So don't say, hey, that's not possible because when you have to, you're capable of change. A crisis is the best catalyst for change. It's amazing what comes to the surface in tremendously difficult situations. Motivational Tony speaker Tony Robbins. I've never quoted Tony Robbins, but this is a great statement. He says, Change happens when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. You agree with that? That's when change happens. Why is it so difficult to change? Because change is hard. Sometimes it hurts. And that's why we don't like it. Breaking old habits is never easy. If somebody says, oh, that's easy. It's easy to lose 30 pounds. It's easy to quit smoking. It's easy to run a marathon. They're lying to you. If it was easy, everyone would do it. No one would smoke. No one would be fat. Some of you are going, who are these people? They're horrible, right? They tell you it's easy, but it's not easy. It's hard. But if you create an internal crisis where you realize that the pain of staying where you are is worse than the pain of what it's going to take to change, then guess what? You'll find a way to get to that place. And I think God is nudging us to do that. For some of us to grow closer to him, to draw deeper in our walk with him, some of us to step out and take ownership in ministry, some of us to actually just share the gospel with that person in the cube next to us at work. We see in Elisha's story three different actions that I think will help us when we think about taking those steps to change. The first action is this. Change requires drastic action. Change requires drastic action. Elisha is demanding, he's, excuse me, demonstrating drastic action, when he chose to light on fire the yoke that he had used to plow with his oxen and then butchering the oxen and barbecuing them on that fire and then eating barbecue with his friends. He destroyed one of the family John Deere tractors. That's pretty drastic. That's ripped from the Cortez playbook. You know, in 1519, Captain Hernane Cortez Landed at Veracruz, and he gave the first order. you know what it was? He told his men to burn the ships because they were either going to succeed or they were going to die, but they were not going to retreat. That's a pretty serious order right there. As his men stood on the shore watching those ships burn. Sometimes, to truly achieve the level of success that we desire, there are going to be times when we need to burn the ships. We need to look at that thing that we've been a part of for a long time, and we need to say, that's not going to get us to where we need to go. And we always hate that, right, when we close down something. But my mom started that 28 years ago. Yeah, well, it's on fire now. Are you drastic enough in the actions that you're taking in your own personal pursuit of change, or are you playing it safe? Do you tend to to deal with tough things tomorrow or next week or when it's more convenient? Drastic action is called for, and I wonder if you're willing to do what it takes to change. Why is it so drastic? Why isn't drastic action so necessary at the beginning? Because it's the first domino. You remember last week? You heard last week's message, if you heard that, you know the first domino eventually knocks over the next domino and then the next domino, and eventually it leads to knocking over this two-story high domino. But it all started with that tiny little domino. The significant change won't happen until you knock over the first domino. Drastic change. Sir Isaac Newton is famous for discovering the rules of gravity and the laws of motion. The first law of motion or what is described in layman's terms as inertia, says this, objects will remain at rest or in uniform motion in a straight line unless compelled to change its state by the action of an external force. What he's saying here is this, everything in the universe wants to keep doing whatever it's doing. It doesn't want to change. Everything is resistant to change. That's what we call inertia. Now, inertia is defined as A tendency to do nothing or to remain unchanged. That sounds like like a lot of us when we were teenagers, right? We just don't want to do anything. We don't want to change, right? We don't want to do that. The word for inertia actually has its root in the Latin word for lazy. You follow what I'm talking about? That makes so much sense. Our default setting is to stay where we are. It's a setting that says, I don't want to move. I'm more comfortable. I don't want to change. Change is hard. It's difficult. It's, it's uncomfortable. And that's why it's so difficult to change your life. Because our, our, default mess, our default setting is just to say, stay here. Just stay here. Because all the normal energy that you would apply to making change gets spent overcoming inertia. And you're not able to use any of it to build up speed. Let me give you an example. That's why fasting is so drastic. It's not eating for a while. And some of you go, why would you do that? People fast from food to hear God more clearly. They trust him to provide in that period of time. Jesus fasted for 40 days. That takes drastic action to do that. It's drastic to deny your body food for a greater purpose. But it's also drastic to delete some phone numbers from your phone of people who are toxic to you or people who are dysfunctional and they cause you to pull down. They're, you can't, you've tried, you can't help them. They pull you down. Or maybe to break up with someone who every time you're with them, they pull you down. You are less like Jesus when you are with them because they have this insane, crazy power over you. And you, you don't believe God has anything better for you, but I'm telling you, there is something better for you than that. The time for half measures is over. Otherwise, in five years from now, you're going to be an older version of who you are right now, only more exaggerated, more rooted in the extremes. Take drastic action. Action number two that we see in Elisha's story. Change requires steady progression. Change requires steady progression. A steady progression is slow and consistent. It it might take 18 years. What's he doing? He's just pouring water on the hands of the prophet for 18 years of pouring water. Drastic action, though. It tips over that first domino. It says, I'm burning the I'm burning the oxen. I'm barbecuing them. We're eating, and then I'm going to be his servant. And 18 years, that's it. 18 years, that's what happened. He knocks over that first domino, and it doesn't look like a whole lot's been happening. All we have is just a really short verse in Second Kings that says, "He was born water." That's all we know about it. We don't know anything else, but he's growing because when the time comes for Elijah to go to heaven and God to make Elisha his prophet, he's ready. He's ready because of steady progression. Epictetus is the a Greek philosopher who said, no great thing is created suddenly, any more than a bunch of grapes or a fig. If you tell me that you desire a fig, I answer that, there must be time. Let it first blossom, then bear fruit, then ripen. What the philosopher is saying is, whatever change you want that's sudden and instant, if it's instantly visible, it's likely not long-term sustainable. Have you ever heard the phrase, if it's too good to be true, it probably is? That's what he's saying here. This kind of stuff takes time. You want the compound interest kind of time. You want that to take hold here. You want the process that God put into place, slow and steady, to win this race. God always works by sowing and reaping. So we find ourselves a year from now doing the thing that we were meant to do and being on track to see what could happen in four more years down the road. We're on track, or maybe 10 years, or maybe even to the very end of our lives, to think, that's what God called me to do. Keep watering. Keep pouring water. What's it gonna take? Steady progression. Just day in and day out. Keep being that person of God that he called you to be. And keep building on it. Learn the little lessons. Be available. Take some advice, some direction from wise people around you. Don't think you have it all figured out because none of us do. Keep watering. John Maxwell said this. Improvement doesn't happen in a day, but it must happen daily. Daily. It's not going to happen today, and it's probably not going to happen tomorrow. Now, God could do a major work in your life, and that could radically transform you. But the truth is that doesn't happen very often. Most of us, it's sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping, day in and day out, day in and day out. You cannot be changed by tomorrow, but it has to happen daily if you're gonna get where we wanna be in five years. Action number three. Action number three that we see in Elisha's story is that when there has been drastic action followed by steady progression, then you can enjoy momentum. Momentum. Isn't it interesting? The way that Elisha eventually comes to the place where slowly and steadily he's been filling up his life with these small little decisions. And we're not sure what all is going on. But he's pouring water, pouring water. And then eventually he comes to this dramatic place and he experiences momentum. He's the guy. And he goes from there and he's just riding that wave. If you take the thing that you're trying to change and you multiply it out a hundred times or a thousand times over and over again, you get to the place where you have this picture of what could happen to you in five years or ten years or whenever down the road. And by the way, that's why you should be in a group because we were never designed to do this kind of stuff on our own. And we could talk a whole sermon on this, but you have to be connected to a biblical community. Some of you are going, I don't want to be in this no stupid community, Okay. Don't be telling me to do what I have to do. And I'm just telling you, if you want the maximum output from what we're talking about here, making change, you will get way more of a growth component in it when you're doing it with other people. So get in a life group, get in a D group, get in a class, get in a ministry team, get with a group of people. Maybe it's just a mentor or somebody who will pour into you and answer your questions and challenge you and hold you accountable. All those things. You need to be in a community if you're going to thrive. You have to have that. Here's the cool thing, we're almost done. All this leads to momentum. Why is that? Because inertia is a double edged sword. Remember what Newton said things that are at rest stay at rest, but objects in motion, what do they do? They stay in motion and they do so in a straight line. So if you set your course and you, get, you make the drastic action and you get steady progression, all of a sudden, boom, you've got momentum and you're headed that way. That's a law of the universe. So take drastic action and let's get going in the right direction and then establish a steady progression and you can keep going because of the momentum. Now I'm not saying there won't be some things that are going to try to knock you off your course because the enemy is not going to like this especially if you're doing this for the case of what Jesus has called you to, what God is calling you to. But you can make great progress. And if you're with a group of people who can hold you up and encourage you and you in turn to them, think about the difference that that group could make over the course of the next five years. Let me close with this. The the space shuttle would, they tell me, use more fuel taking off to break free from Earth's gravity, I, was set, I said it wrong in the first service. Earth's atmosphere, and, and someone smarter than me said, no, it's actually gravity. And I said, thank you. So the people were lied to in the first service, but you guys are not, okay? <laughs> it's actually gravity that it has to pull away from. And it uses so much fuel that they say that the shuttle will actually spend more fuel breaking free from Earth's gravity than it will on the entire rest of its mission. It's a lot of fuel. And it does that to break free from what's holding it as an object at rest, because if the universe was in control, it would just sit there on the launch pad, and it would never leave. But you have to take drastic action to get the shuttle off the pad and out of Earth's, out of Earth's gravity. But eventually, it becomes an object of motion. And then it doesn't hardly take any fuel for it to fly. And this is what's possible for every single person in here. If you wanna make the right decisions to be something far greater than you are now in five years. Eventually, you come to the spot where the right things have, to be, have been set in place and they have been continuing And it's hard to get off the ground at first, but you keep going and you keep giving. And here's here's what eventually happens. The overview. Drastic action is unbearable at times. It's hard. That's what we've been talking about. The whole first part of this talk is about change is hard. And then to maintain the steady progression, that can be uncomfortable as well. Doing the same thing, reading God's Word every day spending time with him, drawing close to him. Kind of sounds like pouring water almost, right? I've read this before. How many times have you read it? I've read it before. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't see that the last time or the first 15 times that I read it. And all of a sudden now, it's coming new, right? There's something in that consistency, being steady and progressive, steady progression. But once you get to this phase, once you get that momentum going you're going to enjoy it and you're going to become an unstoppable force in the name of jesus and the world will be different and there will be people in heaven because of it who wouldn't want to be that i hope you do i want to pray for you father thank you for your love for us and i thank you that as we look at 2020 And we think about things in our lives that we want to change, things that we want to grow in and we want to improve. And five years from now, we don't want to be the same person, only more exaggerated version of a current self. We want to be different. We want to be more like Jesus, tooled and prepared for what you have called us to be. And, Lord, as we look five years down the road, we, we can see a picture of what's possible, but we also know it's difficult to break free, to break free from the inertia of life, I just want to be inertia. I want to be lazy sometimes, stay right where we are. But we know, God, if we're going to make a change, we got to break free from that. Will you give us the strength and the vision? Will you give us the tenacity to stay with it? Give us the strength, God, to take that drastic action, and then help us to maintain the steady progression until we reach our goal. And then we start to experience momentum and guide us to use that momentum for your purposes, God. Use us in that way. God, don't let us get knocked off to the side or off to the other side, end up in the ditch because the enemy is trying to derail us. Help us stay focused. Help us to stay in that lane that you've created for us to be on and fight every day to accomplish what you would have us to do, Lord. Lord, I pray especially for the man or woman, student, young person who's never set you on the throne of their life and they're just checking you out the first step of making the necessary change is just accepting jesus as your lord and savior i pray god that they'll know they can come talk to us anytime i'll be available at the end of this service i'd love to talk to somebody who wants to talk about jesus being on their throne of their life lord help us to make good decisions to take drastic action, steady progression, so we might enjoy momentum to become that man, that woman that you've called us to be. We ask in Jesus' name.